0: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is another installment of our sort of history series uh, and background series on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we've been getting tons and tons of questions from you as listeners, and my aim is over time, over the course of the next weeks, to get through as many of those questions as possible. Today, we're going to tackle one huge question that we got a lot lot of input from the audience on, which is, you know, why do you want her to know? Who is Hamas? What is Hamas? How did they get started? What are their aims? Who are their leaders? How have they changed over time? And so I'm going to attempt in this episode to answer that question with the same disclaimer I always give, which is I'm trying to be as even-handed and objective as possible. Obviously, we're talking about an organization, though, that carried out like a, a pretty atrocious atrocity a month ago. And so in giving this history, I want to make sure that even though I'm going to be uh, a, a bit tedious. I'm going to be didactic at times. I, I don't want to lose the emotion of the moment either. And in kind of breaking this apart as methodically as I can, uh, I don't want to lose sight of the sort of the moral content of what's going on here. And so uh, I want to just say that at the outset, people, long-time listeners, or at least been listening to the past few episodes, know how I feel at the big picture level. But what I wanna do is give you a thorough picture as possible about who this organization is because there are just a lot of claims going on about who they are and what they represent. One other disclaimer here is that the information on Hamas is very spotty, very suspect, it's just disjointed. And you know, I said this about the conflict writ large that there's just not a lot of objective sources. As it relates to Hamas, that's particularly true. There just aren't a lot of deep resources on Hamas. I wish I still worked at the State Department because they would have cables and briefings and all these kinds of things that are usually really helpful. Some of the resources that I'll be drawing upon today is uh, one book called Hamas Contained by Tarek Baconi, who, at least as of the book's writing, uh, lived in the West Bank, and uh, he gives a pretty exhaustive history of Hamas. Now he is he is definitely not an objective observer. He seems pretty clearly on the Palestinian side, but if you divorce his sort of commentary from his news reporting, like some people will love the commentary, some people will disagree with it, but the, the sort of news reporting itself is very interesting and he provides a lot of uh, helpful information. So that's one big source. Graham Wood has written a lot for the Atlantic about Hamas. The Council on Foreign Relations has put out a few reports on Hamas that have been really helpful. Uh, I'm also drawing upon Hamas's two charters. They have their original charter and their new charter. So I'm going to quote from those two documents. Now, these are documents that say some things that I think might offend our audience. So I just want to say at the outset that you will hear things that are anti-Semitic in nature, not because obviously I hope you think, you know, I'm not anti-Semitic, but I want to make sure that I capture their views as they say them. And then there are some polls, so we'll link to some of those polls uh, of the Palestinians. There's a ton more there, but it's I'm kind of pulling together a few resources here. And at the outset, in in revisiting the history of Hamas, Hamas is about the same age as me as a human being, which is really interesting. Uh, it, It basically was born when I was born. It has a few phases in its existence. There's the first phase when the... Uh, Hamas organization comes about in a world dominated by Fatah and the PLO, and Hamas presents a an alternative to the sort of Arab nationalistic anti colonial language that Fatah is using. And Hamas was explicitly uh, Islamist and was you know defined itself as an Islamic movement. So and, and it also uh, explicitly embrace certain tactics like suicide bombings, et cetera. So there's that phase where there's a sort of tug of war between these two forces where Fatah and the PLO are the dominant forces and Hamas is kind of trying to assert itself both internal to the territories and obviously externally with Israel and then other Arab countries as potential allies. So that's like the first phase of Hamas's, Hamas's existence. Second phase of Hamas's existence is when they actually take power in the Gaza Strip. And uh, this is, I would say, the most complicated phase because they maintain their military posture. They maintain a lot of the things that were true about them before, but then they had to assume governance. And then I would say we're now in the third phase, which began on October 7th, when Hamas reasserted itself as a pretty much strictly paramilitary terroristic organization and basically abandoned uh, I think, the goal of governing Gaza. I think at, at the point where they launched the attack that they launched, um, they basically relinquished any hope of governing Gaza long term. And as you will see in this history, that, although there were certain things that were unplanned in in how the October 7th attacks played out, like meaning like Hamas obviously planned the initial phases of it, but I think even they were surprised by how far it went. But there was a lot of inertia heading into those attacks where Hamas seemed kind of over-governing, which we'll get to. Um, And even people who are sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, uh, like uh, Tarek Bakoni, make very clear that Hamas kind of ran out of energy to govern the Gaza Strip uh, for a whole host of different reasons that we could speculate on and, and parse through. So those are the three phases of Hamas as I see it. And so uh, let's get started on this. And I'm going to draw a lot from this book from Tarek Bocconi. uh, And this book's premise, and from the outside, I'm going to challenge the premise of this book. The book's premise is that Hamas is a political, not religious party. Uh, That's like on one of the first sentences of the book, but (laughs) like in the next uh, page of the book, it, it says, quote, of course, through its own declaration, Hamas is an Islamic movement by charter and by the faith of its leadership and its membership base," end quote. So just at the outset, that is a tug of war. And in contrast to some of these other explainers, I'll just name at the outset that I am not convinced of this thesis of the book. Uh, And I'll quote Tarek uh, himself to illustrate this throughout, which is Hamas is very clear throughout its history that they are explicitly an Islamic fundamentalist organization. Uh, they were founded by this guy named Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. He was a paraplegic uh, man. He had a long white beard, and he hailed from a refugee village uh, of Algeria, uh, which is now in Israel. And Sheikh Yassin fled in 1948. And he kind of was bouncing around a bunch of different places. He went to you know, a, a very prestigious university in Egypt, but wasn't able to finish because of his health. and within the territories, and that that university actually plays a large part in a lot of the sort of creation of a lot of Islamic fundamentalist organizations called Al-Azhar University in Egypt. And Sheikh Yassin returned to Gaza and joined the Muslim Brotherhood chapter in Palestine. Um, So the Muslim Brotherhood is an organization that had been dominant in Egypt for a long time and has ties to all sorts of organizations like Al-Qaeda that you see throughout the region. And uh, Yassin comes back to Gaza, starts a chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Palestine. And uh, this organization was all about Islamic fraternity and how Islamic fraternity superseded national loyalty. Uh, In 1976, Yassin applied to Israel's occupation authorities for a license to establish an Islamic association. Uh, He wanted to provide an umbrella organization to provide legal and administrative support for The Brotherhood's various social, religious, educational causes in Gaza, Israel approved the license. Uh, and Israel at the time viewed Islamists as a counter to nationalists. So at the time, the PLO, like these nationalists, as I was talking about, these people who are sort of using the more decolonial, secular language, were more, uh, Israel viewed them as more of a threat than the Islamists who were coming up. Um, Yassin was a very regimented hierarchical leader. And he kind of pissed off a lot of the younger people who were coming through this organization, and some of them splintered off. So there's an organization called Islamic Jihad, uh, which splintered off in 1981. And this was largely a group of young people who just kind of were were a bit bothered by the sort of commanding approach that Sheikh Yassin took. Yassin also split with the Brotherhood uh, at a certain point. in. The the, uh, Islamic Jihad organization um, split with them as well around the same time. And the kind of split here was about whether there was more urgency to the armed struggle. And uh, there were certain tensions also between the local Palestinian chapters of the Brotherhood and the Jordanian branches of the Brotherhood, um, which kind of came to a head in the mid-80s, where the sort of people within the territories felt more urgency to use armed struggle, terroristic tactics, uh, and people in the diaspora communities uh, were, you know, le- more skeptical of those types of approaches. Now, um, there was a key meeting, and this was the year of my birth, 1983, uh, between the different factions where they kind of blessed armed struggle. And so at this point, Yasin in the uh, Gaza Strip started stockpiling weapons. And Yasin also uh, was given the green light to kind of expand activities. And as part of this, they were able to establish like a kind of military wing within the Gaza Strip. And it was um, one guy central to this work was a guy named uh, Khalid Mashal, who was a young student living in Kuwait. And he would go on even till this day to become a prominent leader. So we'll come back to him. And so this this sort of militaristic sort of offshoot of the brotherhood, uh, eventually wound up subsuming everything else in the Palestinian territories that the Brotherhood did, like the social, the social economic, social welfare organizations, et cetera. So that the armed resistance movement, which at this point is Hamas, um, the, which is called the Islamic resistance movement, this is kind of where the name comes from, basically subsumes everything else. And Sheikh Yassin and some of his allies like Khalid Mishal are you know, central to this. They're the leaders where Sheikh Yassin is kind of like the leader um, in the territories. Uh, Khalid Mashal, for the most part in the history of Hamas, is kind of like their external leader. There's always an internal and external. Mashal is, from for the most part, their main external leader outside of the territories. And within a few months of its creation, Hamas issued a charter. So the charter of the organization, kind of like your bylaws and your manifesto put together, right? And the charter is titled The Charter of Allah, the platform of the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas. And I'm gonna quote some of this and and summarize some of it. So um, the document says, quote, God is its goal, the messenger is its leader, the Quran is its constitution, jihad is its methodology, and death for the sake of God is the most coveted desire, end quote. Uh, The document positioned Hamas as a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood chapter in Palestine. It talked about transnational Islamism, Um, It was peppered with anti-Semitic references about Jewish wealth, the devious nature of the Jews, the influence of the global media with Jews. It drew on the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is an anti-Semitic book about Jews plotting to dominate the world. Um, It talks about how Jews were interchangeable from the Zionists. I'll I'll quote another uh, passage from this document. And again, like this stuff is offensive, um, and I just want to warn people listening to this. Um, This is a quote from the document. Our struggle against the Jews is very great and very serious. It needs all sincere efforts. It is a step that inevitably should be followed by other steps. The movement is but one squadron that should be supported by more and more squadrons from this vast Arab and Islamic world until the enemy is vanquished and Allah's victory is realized, end quote. So a few things that are uh, important to note about that quote. Number one, this is a transnational ideology. So whereas uh, you talk about the PLO, you talk about Fatah It's very much grounded in the identity of the Palestinian people and uh, nationhood. Hamas, although it talks about creating a nation, et cetera, from their very inception, both because of their connection with the Muslim Brotherhood, but also because of the things that they say explicitly are about something wider than the Palestinian identity. And this is something that's going to cause them trouble over time. Um, And specifically as it relates to their neighbors, right? Why do their neighbors get so threatened by them, like Egypt, which we'll get to, in part because of this ideology. Um, here is another quote. Um, they quote the the they quote scripture here. They say the Prophet Allah bless him and grant him salvation has said colon quote the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews uh, parentheses killing the Jews uh, when the Jew will hide behind stones and trees the stones and trees will say oh Muslims oh Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me come and kill him only garkad tree evidently which is a kind of certain kind of tree would not do that because it is one of the trees of the Jews, end quote. This uh, document also refused to recognize the state of Israel. It defined the territory as an Islamic land entrusted with Muslims, uh, the Muslim generations until Judgment Day. And it said, quote, Jihad for the liberation of Palestine is obligatory. That is their charter. And so this is their founding document, right? This is really important to keep in mind as we move forward. Um, In late 1988, Arafat, who, you know, we've now listened to the history. So one thing to note is I'm going to mention things, assuming a lot of you have heard the last two histories. So I'll mention events and I won't go into details all the time about casualty numbers and civilian numbers and all that, just because we've already established a lot of that. I also will do the same for leaders. Uh, I'm not going to over-explain things. But in late 1988, Arafat, who is the leader of the PLO and Fatah, convened the exiled Palestinian leadership in Algiers and he signaled the PLO's willingness to accept the state on 78% of Palestinian land that had been lost in 1948 and to renounce terrorism. This led Reagan, the president of the United States at the time, to open dialogue with the PLO. And Hamas was against this. And this becomes the structure of their relationship moving forward. So uh, Hamas generally is against uh, recognizing Israel, making any concessions. Even against diplomacy for a large part of their existence, up until uh, recent history, when they have to assume more and more governing responsibility, then they get kind of more invested in diplomacy. But um, they kind of play foil to the PLO. Uh, and again, like the two different ideologies here, I can't stress this enough PLO, anti colonial nationalism, Hamas, uh, Islamic transnationalism. Those are the big differences between them. Um, the PLO, Uh, And and sort of second big difference is PLO really viewed diplomacy as a key tool, although they did engage in in paramilitary and terroristic attacks over time. Hamas was squarely against the diplomacy. Um, So we all know, uh, now that we've listened to the other history, about the first intifada, which stretched from the late 80s to the early 90s. um, During this period of time, the PLO accused Hamas of undermining their unity, of not participating in civil disobedience alongside them because Hamas was doing things like alternative strike dates, for example. In early 1989, Hamas captured and murdered two Israeli soldiers, prompting Israel to uh, declare it a terrorist organization. Um, And during that attack, Sheikh Yassin was um, implicated in those murders and was sentenced to life in prison for his role. So he's kind of taken out of the game for a while. Um, This forced Hamas to relocate its key leadership bodies abroad, uh, you know, they had, remember they had sizable refugee camps in Lebanon, Syria, uh, and Jordan, and they had clandestine leadership in the occupied territories. This is a continuation of the internal leadership versus the external leadership. There's actually three types of leadership of Hamas. Uh, and this is true of a lot of the organizations in the territories. They have their internal leadership in the territories. They have their external leadership, which is often raising money and engaging in diplomacy with other Arab states. And then they have their prison leadership which often is, is you know, not talked about enough because the people who um, are sent to prison are often revered um, within Hamas and some of these other organizations. And they exercise a lot of influence at times over the organization, especially when they come out. 1990 is a key moment. The PLO condemned Saddam Hussein. Remember what I talked about in the last episode, how like the Gulf War, uh, or two episodes ago on this, uh, the Gulf War played a huge part because Arafat supported Saddam Hussein The PLO condemned him. So uh, the Gulf states started to redirect funds, some of the Gulf states, to Hamas at the expense of Fatah. Hamas consolidated its military organizations at this point into one organization called the Qassam Brigades. And this is named after Izz al-Din al-Qassam, who I I talked about in that first history, is sort of like revered figure within certain figures of the Palestinian resistance from the early 1900s. Hamas uh, also opposed, you know, 1993 is is the Oslo years, the beginning of the Oslo years. Uh, Hamas was very much in opposition to Oslo every step of the way, Uh, and the PLO through Oslo started to take more control over the security over the territories, which exposed itself in many ways to Hamas, both because it would be pressed to crack down on Hamas at various periods of time, but also because Hamas would uh, use the sort of Brutality and whatever that the PLO had to, that felt that they had to use to keep security against the PLO. Uh, and so they would start to paint the PLO as both brutal and corrupt in the eyes of the Palestinian people. On April 6, 1994, there was the first uh, Hamas suicide bombing within Israel at a bus stop. It killed seven Israelis. Uh, this bomb was the first that we know of carried out by a guy named y- Yaya Ayash who was uh, dubbed the engineer. He was Hamas's first bomb maker. After Rabin's assassination, uh, one of Shimon Perez, if you remember Shimon Perez, he took over for Rabin after the assassination. One of his first acts, Perez's, was to order the killing of the engineer. Uh, and he did kill the engineer. Hamas retaliated with a suicide bombing in Israel that killed 26. Uh, the same year, Hamas boycotted the first presidential and legislative elections to take place under the newly Formed Palestinian Authority, which was formed because of Oslo. Uh, Hamas didn't want to confer any legitimacy on Oslo. Um, and uh, here's a quote from uh, Tarek Bakoni's book. Uh, he said, quote, Hamas strategically persisted in its suicide missions to derail the process, despite continued opposition from the Palestinian public. Hamas's campaign of suicide bombing had a powerful impact on the Israeli electorate which in 1996 voted to replace the labor government with a more security-oriented and right-wing Likud government under leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu. And, quote, the Palestinian Authority uh, sustained a crackdown on Hamas during this period of time, and the U.S. declared Hamas a terrorist organization in 1997, um, which hindered its international activities. In 97, uh, Israel tried to kill Khalid Mashal in Jordan. I had mentioned this in one of the previous episodes. This was the incident where the uh, Israelis had to go to their embassy, and they had to exchange uh, a prisoner for Khalid Mishal. But and, and through all of that, uh, they had to Jordan like pressured Israel to do that prisoner release. But in the aftermath of that, Jordan was also pressured to take action against Hamas, and they had to declare Hamas's presence in the country illegal, and uh, Hamas had to relocate to Doha and Damascus. Uh, In May 2000, Ehud Barak unilaterally withdrew forces from South Lebanon without a peace treaty with Lebanon. Hamas read this as proof that uh, armed resistance was the model not negotiation. So this would be some of the early lessons that Hamas learned, which is uh, they felt that actually it was terrorist activities that put pressure on Israel to negotiate peace and that Israel would take unilateral action actually in response to violent pressure. That's just kind of like an assumption that they make. Uh, about the structure of power in the region, in uh, 2000, Barack and Arafat had that sort of close, you know, close to a deal situation I talked about in the last history that fell apart. Um, that uh, obviously created tension within both countries, who felt like the peace process was starting to become hopeless. And that was also at the period of time where Sharon visited uh, the Temple Mount and the Al Aqsa Mosque. Uh, this was preceded uh, the period of the second intifada. In October 8th, Arafat chaired a meeting of the PLO factions in Gaza to coordinate. So at this point, uh, Arafat seems kind of more willing to both sit down with Hamas, but also to take a more militant role than even he had in the past. And he had, he had definitely taken part in militant and terrorist activities in the past. Um, Hamas uh, even being at the table for this October 8th meeting was historic, and Arafat released 350 prisoners, mainly Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Israel viewed this as a green light for terrorism. Uh, and during the first six months of the Intifada, um, Hamas was uh, a relatively minor player while focused uh, Israel focused on Fatah. Uh, but Hamas took an increasingly aggressive approach. They started uh, distributing uh, leaflets throughout the territories uh, that really pushed for a pan-Arab and pan-Muslim approach to the conflict, saying, quote, The Arab and Islamic fronts uh, need to take responsibility for this war. Al-Qassam, which remember is their uh, militant wing, Hamas's militant wing, took what they called the balance of terror approach. They said, "Quote: "Uh, Now the Zionists also suffer from being killed, and now Israeli buses have no one riding in them, and Israeli shopping centers are not what they used to be." And uh, after another one of their suicide attacks. They wrote that the Israeli people, quote, now live in unprecedented state of horror, fear, and panic, end quote. Um, And so when I use the term terrorist organization, um, I use it in with, like, I would say fairly sound ground in the sense that Hamas is explicitly saying their goal is to instill terror and fear within the civilian populations of Israel and they're targeting civilians explicitly, which in my book squarely constitutes Uh, being a terrorist organization. Um, Early in the summer of 2001, Hamas launched its what it called 10 bombers campaign, saying that they deployed 10 bombers into Israel. um, And they would release countdown videos with what they called martyrs describing their operations. And they carried out five of those 10 operations. The largest was in a Tel Aviv nightclub, which killed 16 Israelis, injuring more than 80. This coincided with, with what Hamas called from Martyrs to Mortar Fire campaign. It's really interesting that they like use marketing language around this, by the way. Um, And this was uh, their campaign to send rockets into Israel. This started on April 1st, 2001. Um, By July 31st, 2001, Israel assassinated uh, two Hamas leaders and four members along with two children uh, were were caught up in that. Um, A week later on August 9th, 2001, Hamas carried out a suicide attack on a Sabaro pizza in Jerusalem, killing 15 and injuring more than 90. Um, the attack, uh, according to t- uh, Tarif Pocconi, the attack was time to derail diplomatic initiatives that were beginning to gather peace after the Mitchell report. Um, September 11th, you know, 2001, this is a turning point because Hamas is, and the wider, the Second Intifada itself, were wrapped up now within the politics and rhetoric of the war on terror. Um, the Palestinian Authority, in response to that pressure, began to step up arrests, and they placed Yassin and other key leaders under house arrest. Now, one clarification: Yassin was the prisoner given up because of that botched Jordan situation. So that's who Israel had to give up was Yassin in order to get their people back um, for that botched uh, assassination attempt of Khalid Mashal in Jordan. But um, this this atmosphere uh, in you know this sort of 9/11 atmosphere. Uh, where the Palestinian Authority had to take actions internally, and Sharon was very uh, aggressive and uncompromising. Um, this led uh, Hamas to kind of buckle a little bit under the pressure, and they issued a week-long cessation in the, in the weeks after 9-11. And on January 3rd, 2002, um, that ceasefire fell apart when Israel intercepted a vessel in Gaza with 15 million million worth of weapons from Iran. We've talked about that. Um, in a previous episodes, that led in March 2002 to uh, two operations, Rolling Response and Colorful Journey. Um, these were uh, the first large-scale Israeli operations specifically targeting Hamas. Uh, and Hamas actually celebrated this as a vindication and a sort of marker that they'd kind of rised on, arrived on the scene. And they were they were now the sort of big players. And Hamas engaged in an extensive campaign of suicide bombings, Uh, throughout 2001 that Tariq Bukhoni said, quote, failed to elicit any concessions from Israel. Instead, its actions merely increased the ferocity of Sharon's uh, determination to crush the Palestinian struggle. Cracks had begun to appear in Hamas's military strategy, given Israel's uncompromising response, end quote. Saudi Arabia stepped in to try to broker peace at this point with what was called the Arab Peace Initiative. And on the day Arab leaders met in Beirut to discuss Their proposal for peace, a Hamas suicide bomber detonated explosives at a Passover Seder dinner in Netanyahu's Park Hotel in Israel, killing 16 and injuring 90. Um, This was clearly meant to undermine the peace process. And this is just the thing you'll hear over and over again. You know, parties are coming together for peace. This goes back to Oslo, right? Uh, Nearly every time the parties come together for peace, Hamas engages in suicide attacks to undermine those peace talks. November 2002, Egypt convened the uh, Cairo National Dialogues to negotiate amongst the different Palestinian factions. Hamas rejected an to terrorism as a prerequisite for the withdrawal of Israeli troops. There was a ton of back and forth during this period of time, both between Israel and Hamas and Hamas and Fatah. Uh, Israel killed uh, several senior Hamas leaders, uh, and then Hamas would uh, carry out suicide attacks. And obviously, the causation here is, is up for debate, and I'm not going to get into that and um, as Bacconi said, quote, Hamas's military strategy reflected a fundamental misunderstanding on its part regarding how Israel will react to its operations. So this is a big piece here, which is Hamas was premised in many ways that if they, if they just stepped up attacks on Israel, that Israel would then concede territory and they would point to evidence like certain unilateral withdrawals from Israeli territory. But I think they, you know, as Bacconi said, and I think my reading on this too, is that it's actually had the opposite effect. So um, it's something we can you should keep in your head as we go through this, because this pattern will reemerge. On March 22nd, Israel assassinated Sheikh Yassin. So big moment. They assassinate the sort of the leader of Hamas, the founder of Hamas. Um, and uh, a guy named uh, Abdel Aziz Rantisi was elected leader within the territories, and he was killed by the Israelis in less than a month later. So they killed the two leaders of Hamas in succession in less than a month. They, Hamas did not name a successor in the territories at that period of time for fear of assassination. Uh, during this period of time, talks continued between the Palestinian Authority, Fatah, and Hamas. Um, and Khalid Mashal, remember, who's the sort of leader of their political wing, who's mostly spending time outside of the territories, um, said, uh, quote, governance in Gaza is our natural right and the right of all of our people. We're partners uh, in blood, partners in decision making, end quote. Um, Municipal elections, which are distinct from legislative and presidential elections, but the municipal elections uh, that took place between 2004 and 2005 took place in four rounds. And Hamas traditionally participated in these elections, um, and they participated under a banner of change and reform. uh, And they said, quote, the choice is Qassam rocket or a policeman protecting Israel. Uh, And at the end of that four sort of stage process, of municipal elections, Hamas gained 30% of seats and 50.1% of the vote, compared to Fatah's 32.9% of the seats and 30% of the vote. Um, and that's the municipal elections. Uh, talks with uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, Fatah progressed and Hamas agreed to participate in legislative elections, which it had previously boycotted. Sharon uh, was really worried. Uh, Sharon who's the leader of Israel at that time, was worried that Hamas would win. Um, Abbas and the Bush administration initially thought that Hamas's participation would tame them, but over time, the perception started to shift, and Abbas in June postponed the elections uh, with American approval. At that time, uh, Sharon also pulled settlements from Gaza, which uh, emboldened Hamas, who viewed this as a response, once again, to violence and not to negotiation. So they viewed Sharon's pullout as Sharon uh, buckling to pressure, which I think is going to be a drastic and very fatal miscalculation for Hamas uh, in the years ahead. The Bush administration started to run out of patience. They refused further delays to the elections, but insisted that Hamas disarm Hamas first before the elections. Uh, Hamas rejected disarmament, and Israel begrudgingly agreed to let them run anyway. So this was the lead up to the 2006 legislative uh, elections, uh, which Hamas ran on the same platform of change and reform it was 77% turnout, and Hamas won 76 of 132 legislative seats to Fatah's 43. Um, Hibbas, uh one of the Hamas leaders at the time, a guy named Abu Marzouk, uh, said, quote, we will not be in the politics of free concessions. What was before January 25th, 2006 will be different than what comes after it. Um So Hamas is saying, all right, there's a new sheriff in town. Now, George W. Bush uh, and his administration were in a bind at this period of time because they were you know, this is the period of Iraq, et cetera. They're talking about democracy promotion, but they're also in the middle of the war on terror. So what happens if democracy yields a set of leaders who embrace terrorism? It, it creates a real bind. Um, what the Bush administration decided to do was isolate Hamas and support Fatah. They bolstered Abbas with direct aid and arms and Sharon withheld revenue. You know, the Quartet, which at this, you know, remember is the U.S.-EU. Russia, uh, they support, and the UN, they supported the U.S. approach, but uh, Putin later started to backtrack, saying he didn't agree with uh, the terrorism designation of Hamas. Uh, Iran also remained steadfast at this period of time in support of Hamas. Bas, though, at this period of time, you know, still the president of the territories, he needed Hamas support on key measures. Uh, And uh, there was this really uh, wild moment when the outgoing Fatah dominated legislature passed bills to expand Abbas's presidential powers and to limit the powers of the cabinet in security and legal matters. This was just as they were leaving, they did this, the Fatah members, they basically limited Hamas's power. And this reversed reforms that America had pushed to curb the authority of Arafat, this incensed Hamas who felt like um, the rug was being pulled out under them. In in negotiations over Abbas with Abbas over power sharing, Hamas refused to recognize Israel, which Fatah felt was a necessary step, you know, for if Hamas was going to enter government, given that there was so much coordination going with Israel and they had made previous deals with Israel. Meanwhile, there was this blockade was taking a toll on the territories and in Gaza in particular, unemployment and poverty skyrocketed, and the U.S. EU's uh, used various means to try to bypass Hamas. Um, Israel continued to withhold Palestinian authority revenue. Um, Hamas viewed Israel's actions as a declaration of war. And the US kind of dug in as well uh, when Hamas refused to condemn suicide bombings that took place in Tel Aviv in April of 2006. Uh, At this period of time, Hamas was kind of scrambling to make up for the lost aid and revenue. So they toured the Middle East and shored up Continued support from a whole host of Arab countries, but in a lot of those countries didn't increase support to make up for what was missing from the Americans. Um, but they did get stepped up commitments from Syria and Iran. Tensions began to grow uh, in the years ahead between Hamas and Fatah, but prisoners from the various uh, factions remember what I said about prisoners and how revered they were. Um, prisoners from Fatah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad negotiated what was called the prisoners document, which was a framework. Uh, for unity that included share goals like statehood on the 1967 borders, the right of return, and the right to resist occupation. Uh, So this this was a really interesting moment where you had all the leaders kind of fighting, but the people who are in prison uh, negotiated some kind of unity document. Uh, Abbas was quick to seize on the document and called for a public referendum on it. And Hamas was kind of boxed in at this point because the prisoners were held in such high regard. But Hamas bucked, you know, even that pressure, Hamas bucked it, and they initially refused a referendum. During that period of time, a poll from Birzeit University uh, in the West Bank showed 77% of Palestinians favored recognition of Israel. And this was less than five months after voting Hamas into the legislature. So there's some evidence at that period of time that perhaps Hamas's anti-corruption message won the day more than their Islamist message. And Hamas eventually relented and signed the prisoner's document, but made certain key revisions that I think would would cause some trouble, including uh, a revision that didn't obligate them to support past resolutions and agreements that the PLO made with Israel. Uh, and this period of detente didn't last very long. Around the same time, al-Qassam carried out the killings that led to the capture of the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit, if you remember. They used the tunnel, went into Israel, killed some soldiers, brought Shalit back. Israel responded by deploying into Gaza for the first time since disengagement and arrested 64 members of Hamas, including one third of the cabinet. In the fall of 2006, thousands of civil servants took to the streets to protest their lack of pay. This led to clashes between Palestinian security forces and Hamas, um, 12 dead and over 100 injured. Uh, In 2007, Abbas called for new elections, citing the foolishness of rocket fire that Hamas was sending into Israel and um, the foolishness of the Shalit abduction which Hamas felt was a provocation. Hamas decried that move of calling for a new election, saying it was a violation of the constitution. And there was a a small period of breakthroughs in negotiations over the next few months after that, but tensions continued to rise to the level of a full-blown civil war between the parties. And in June, 2007, Hamas preemptively mobilized its forces and took full control over Gaza in what uh, the Palestinian Authority and Fatah, believed was a premeditated act. Like they essentially charged Hamas with having planned to take over uh, Gaza in what they call the coup. And this is what Bacconi has to say, quote, Hamas achieves his goals in, in spe- spectacular speed as it carried out brutal acts of violence against his political opponents, killing Fatah leaders and Palestinian security forces and forcing many of them to flee the coastal enclave, end quote. Uh, Hamas was now in charge of Gaza. So now the territories are split. West Bank to Fatah, Palestinian Authority, Gaza to Hamas. So this was, you know, Hamas takes power less than two years after Israel pulled out. And in the same period of time, more than 600 Palestinians had been killed and a lot of them killed in cross-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Abbas decried the coup as he saw it and he formed an emergency government in the West Bank under Prime Minister Salim Fayyad, who was previously the finance minister. We talked about him in the last episode. And now there was a blockade that evolved. Uh, and. You know, there was this sort of bind that the Western world and Israel was in previously, which was like, how do we uh, treat sort of mixed government, where they kind of wanted to keep support for the Fatah Abbas part of the Palestinian Authority, but not for Hamas. But if they were in a mixed government and also sharing territory, Gaza and West Bank, it was it was tough to unwind that. But now with the sort of two separate territories, it made it easier for the West to delineate between Hamas and Fatah and now the blockade exclusively focused on Gaza, and it was brutal. The poverty and unemployment rates soared even further in Gaza. Um, And as uh, Barconi said, quote, with Hamas's takeover, the slim territory by the Mediterranean came under absolute internal Palestinian control as Hamas's government rejected any official engagement with Israel, uh, imposed curfews, uh, helm demolitions, and midnight raids by Israel's occupying forces or by Palestinian security following Israeli orders were no longer a daily occurrence as they were in the West Bank, end quote. Um, now, Gaza residents would obviously have a different uh, impression, and they would say that they didn't have full sovereignty uh, and that they weren't in full control over their borders or the sea uh, or the air. Um, and uh, Hamas uh, brutally, at this period of time, cracked down on opposition within Gaza. The Palestinian Center for Human Rights in Gaza accused the executive force in al Qassam of attacks on journalists, illegal arrests, inhumane treatment of prisoners and intimidation of public servants. Hamas now had to govern. Uh, they declared uh, that its cabinet was gonna address three priorities, security, reform, economic development, and national unity. This is the beginning of that next phase I talked about at the beginning. Um, as Barconi said, quote, apart from the health and education, most of the bureaucracy of the Palestinian authorities ceased functioning in the early days after the takeover. Hamas's government relied heavily on international organizations such as the United Nations. And this is when the tunnel economy began to really blossom. So um, tunnels became much more valuable in the age of the blockade. Uh, In mid-2007, there were only 20 tunnels by their estimation. Uh, And now I've read estimates that there are something like 1,300 tunnels in the Gaza Strip. And this was the period of time in which those tunnels expanded. And this created uh, a shadow subterranean economy. and. Uh, as Barconi said, that the the shadow economy um, benefited Hamas's ruling class rather than the traditional mercantile sector within Gaza. Uh, There are all these articles to this day about billionaire uh, Hamas leaders. I have not seen a lot to verify these accounts, but the sort of premise of these articles is that Hamas, both because of like a ton of aid coming from places like Qatar, but also because of the tunnel economy and their control of the tunnel economy, were doing similar things that Fatah was doing with aid and kind of skimming off the top. Uh, you know, although the international community, and even to this day, we, there's not a lot of talk about Egypt. You know, you gotta remember Egypt controls uh one part of the border uh with uh, Gaza. And Hamas started to get really angry at Egypt, which took a hardened attitude to Hamas for fear that it would influence influence the Muslim Brotherhood within Egypt, because you've got to remember the sort of embryonic ties between these organizations. And Egypt has always had this uneasy relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and Egypt kept the uh, the uh, Rafah border shut. This is under Hosni Mubarak. But they would look the other way uh, at tunnel trade, kind of permitted a black market trade uh, through the tunnels to Gaza, because I guess it was in the economic interests of Egypt as they saw it. Um, on January 22nd, 2008, Hamas blew, up, blew open the, the seven-mile Egyptian-Gaza border at Rafah. So they blew it up. And more than 7,000 Palestinians streamed across the border. Within two weeks, Mubarak's forces drove them back into Gaza. And so, this is like part of this. You know, Isaac mentioned this on the podcast that is just under discussed, which is, you know, Egypt, I, w- I would say, um, has been rather heavy handed uh, in maintaining, like, you know, like for folks who, who call Gaza an open air prison, you know, there's one significant portion of the wall of that prison that Israel is not in control of, and Egypt has been pretty staunchly guarding. Um, And this would become, in the years after this, a very important reality for the Gazans. Hamas continued their rocket fire into Israel, and on February 4th, 2008, they sent their first suicide bomber into Israel since 2004. It killed a 73-year-old woman. Uh, That led Israel to launch what was called Operation Hot Winter into Gaza, which killed 110 Palestinians in five days. Hamas was largely intact after that operation and portrayed uh, their sort of survival of it, a victory. In the spring of 2008, there were indirect talks uh, in Cairo that began between Hamas and Israel. This was a big thing because this is the first time that Israel even informally legitimized Hamas. um, And a poll by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research at that time showed 42% of uh, Palestinians supported Fatah compared to 35% for Hamas. And crucially, that uh, if a presidential election were held, that uh, Ismail Haniya, the, the Hamas leader, would be a boss in a presidential election. On June 19th, 2008, uh, Israel and Hamas agreed in principle to a six-month ceasefire. Israel agreed to relax some crossings to allow for basic goods in return for an end to rocket fire. Hamas insisted on uh, a negotiated prisoner exchange separately, so they didn't put um, Shalit uh, on the table. In December 18th, 2008, Hamas announced their refusal to extend the six-month ceasefire, citing Israel's unwillingness to relax the blockades enough. Um, This decision was opposed by Abbas and the Egyptian mediators. And in hindsight, what seems to have been happening is that both sides of the conflict were kind of using that six-month ceasefire to plan to attack each other. And Hamas uh, immediately began lobbying rockets into Israel, and on December 27th, Israel launched Operation Cast Lead, which tried to break the back of Hamas and uh, return—this is disputed, but you know Hamas believes the the goal was to return Fatah to power within Gaza. And uh, I I talk about that whole conflict in a previous episode, so I won't go into it here. But after Israel unilaterally declared a ceasefire after that conflict, Hamas issued leaflets hailing it as a victory, and they they uh, at this point. They also like in that conflict during caste lead, uh, there were protests throughout the Arab world in support of the Palestinians and Hamas. And Hamas pointed to that including like protests that were kind of calling out Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And so Hamas felt like that that was a really important moment um, and, and some momentum they could capitalize on. Shortly after that, there was a reconstruction conference that was held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt with 70 countries, 16 international organizations. And they discussed rebuilding Gaza uh, after Operation Cast Lead, donors tried to redirect funds through the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, but Hamas objected. Uh, and one leader said that the leadership of the Palestinian Authority, quote, failed to return to Gaza. So one of one Hamas leader said this. He said that the Palestinian Authority, quote, failed to return to Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank, and it will not return on the back of a cement mixer. Uh, and so essentially saying, look, like we kicked them out. We're not going to have them return and, you know, administer construction projects here, et cetera, because that's that basically would be de facto control again. So, needless to say, those reconstruction efforts stalled. The Obama's, Obama administration, uh, at this point, would only deal with an interim government that accepted the Quartet's conditions uh, and assigned Fayyad as prime minister. Hamas rejected this. Uh, Hamas uh, began to drop in popularity at this point. Um, in part, I think, due to frustrations at the conditions within Gaza um, and the just repeated uh, spats of violence. Polls showed Fatah with 35% support in the Strip compared to 19% um, for Hamas. Remember what I said uh, on the last podcast, this sort of intifada notion within the Palestinians, which is that the intifada um, and violence in general was wearing thin over the years with the Palestinian public. And as Barconi said, Um, Ironically, Hamas's low level of popularity in Gaza also had to do with its own repression, particularly against rival factions. Despite its talks of plurality, Hamas undermined Gaza's civil society through strict limitations on participation in political life and increased constraints on NGOs." End quote. In 2009, Hamas released a one minute video showing Shalit was alive. So this was the captured Israeli soldier. In return, they got 20 prisoners. So I want to repeat that. They merely released a video, of Shalit saying he was still alive, and they got 20 prisoners in exchange for that. Obviously, Hamas hailed this as a coup, and you know, basically used this us to project strength. In 2010, um, the Arab Spring uh, came about, um, and it toppled Hosni Mubarak. And Hamas uh, had some prisoners in some prisons in Egypt who escaped. And in you know, I mentioned this last time. It seemed for a short period of time that uh, the new leadership. Of Egypt would be sympathetic to Hamas. So they had some hope. I'll come back to that. At this point, uh, there's a lot of pressure throughout the Arab world, including both in Gaza and the West Bank, to show your people that you're reforming and becoming transparent and less corrupt. So Abbas called for presidential and legislative elections and called, uh, invited Hamas to take part. Hamas rejected that call. Abbas also offered to travel to Gaza for talks. That also was rejected. Both sides began taking steps to. just generally improve the perception of governance and representation. And they basically wanted to ward off their own uprisings. Tunnels in Gaza at this point advanced to the point where they could import heavy building material. And by mid-2011, Gaza's economy was doing better than it had in a long time. Estimates on how long it would take to rebuild Gaza had dropped from 80 years to five years. But this also led to questions around the transparency of Hamas's government something they'd run against Fatah on. There are a lot of independent organizations who called into question Hamas's stewardship of those funds. And at this period of time, talks of unity heated up, leading to Abbas's bid at the UN for statehood. So Abbas had like a vested interest in trying to present a unified Gaza and West Bank because he was trying to get the UN to recognize it as a state. And he submitted that to the UN on September 23rd, 2011. Now, he didn't get that statehood as we described. He got this sort of um, unofficial um, observer status or whatever we call it, non-permanent status. On October 18th, Hamas uh, exchanged Shalit for 1,027 prisoners. We talked about this before. Uh, this was viewed as a diplomatic coup. Uh, Khalid Mishal said, quote, we are now experts in the Israeli mentality because God has shown us who they are, end quote. So again, Hamas's view is that more pressure, more violence, hostages, this is how you get Israelis to concede. And this was viewed in the territories as very much undermining of Abbas. Uh, So basically Israel had fought Abbas at the UN when he tried to get statehood, but then they bolstered Hamas with the prisoner exchange. This was viewed by many as a slight of the Palestinian authority. And this shifting sands of the Middle East during the second stage of the Arab Spring created real havoc for Hamas. They, They wound up siding with Sunni opposition in Syria against Bashar al-Assad, who had previously been a steward, a patron of Hamas. Um, this led to Iran cutting off funding uh, and redirecting that funding to Islamic jihad. So the sort of Shia sort of governments of the Middle East are starting to turn on Hamas. Um, at the same time, Hamas had to leave Syria and they started Hamas started to align themselves more with Qatar. Um, in February 2012, there was what was called the Doha Declaration. Um, and this was signed between, uh, Khalid Mishal, who was still running this sort of external political bureau of Hamas. Uh, and he signed it with Mahmoud Abbas. Noticeably absent and a non-signatory was, uh, Ismail Haniyeh, sort of the leader within the territories for Hamas. And the fact that this, this declaration even happened in Doha was a sign that power was shifting from Egypt to Qatar. Uh, and this, uh, agreement formed an interim or, or signaled the commitment of the two sides to form an interim technocratic government headed by Abbas um, to supervise general elections. Uh, and Hamas agreed to relinquish key ministries and the prime minister's office. This caught uh, Netanyahu off guard, as well as some Palestinians, including within Hamas. Um, and this caused tensions within Hamas. Uh, and a lot of people viewed this as Mashal asserting dominance over Haniya. And according to to Tarek Bocconi, this move was driven by Michal's belief that the governing responsibilities were a liability for Hamas. So in Bocconi's eyes, uh, Hamas kind of was the dog who caught the car. They didn't really want to govern anymore. They were trying to offload that responsibility to the Palestinian Authority. Um, Clashes between forces in Gaza and Egypt followed uh, the election of Morsi, and this led to tightening uh, the border and closures of tunnels. So like The Hamas viewed the Morsi, who who succeeded Mubarak, they viewed Morsi, who was close to the the Brotherhood, um, as a potential ally. But there were clashes on the border with Gaza that Egypt blamed on Hamas. There were dead uh, Egyptian soldiers. This led to the uh, suspicion of Egyptians of Hamas at a time that they Hamas thought that they had an ally. Uh, In November 2012, there was what was called Operation Pillar of Defense. Um, where uh, Israel, they their stated rationale for this operation was to destroy Hamas's rocket launching capabilities. And uh, Hamas, in response to this operation, coordinated with Islamic Jihad, uh, and Morsi stepped in to negotiate a ceasefire. Both sides wound up, uh, both Hamas and Israel claimed victory. Um, and in the aftermath, Israel eased the blockade and Hamas agreed to end hostilities and to pacify the resistance in Gaza. Abbas at this point accused Hamas of hypocrisy, saying that Hamas, in, in getting a ceasefire, agreed to basically act as the sort of security forces in coordination with Israel within the territories, which is precisely what Hamas had criticized Fatah for. Um, this sort of operation and the response to it brought Morsi closer to Hamas. Like, so they, they were starting to thaw a little bit because Morsi had to step in and Morsi had to broker a peace This brought him closer with Hamas leaders. He actually wound up going to Gaza on a series of visits. Um, in January, 2013, Q- uh, Qatar granted $400 million for reconstruction of Gaza. Um, Hamas also held internal elections and Mashal was elected the, the head of Hamas's political bureau and uh, Hania was uh, elected the deputy. And, uh, with, you know, Michal as the leader, there were now rumors that Hamas was starting to moderate on June 30th, you know, Morsi and all of his thawing of relations with Gaza became irrelevant because Morsi himself was removed from power in Egypt in a military coup by defense minister Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And Hamas was aligned, uh, with Morsi Morsi publicly in this lead up to this period of time and, um, al-Sisi and the Egyptians uh, blamed Hamas explicitly of supporting Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, covertly. Um, And this was a huge blow to Hamas because Egypt immediately began restricting Rafah's tunnels. Fatah, at this point, seized on the moment and came out aggressively against Hamas, accusing it of interfering in Egypt's affairs. Uh, Abbas issued an ultimatum. He said that the interim government had to be formed by August or he'd unilaterally call elections. Um, in September 2013, Egypt destroyed all tunnels at the Rafah crossing. In the winter of 2013, there was an energy crisis in Gaza that led to its woes. This is like peak misery within Gaza. In January 2014, Egypt formally accused Hamas of coordinating training in Gaza uh, for a Brotherhood terrorists. They had they released these sort of interrogations and documents um, that they purported. They said that purported to show that um, Hamas had. Coordinated and trained within Gaza, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, April twenty third, twenty fourteen, was the Shati Agreement, which was named after the refugee settlement uh, that the talks took place in. This was an agreement between uh, Fatah and Hamas, um, and this was kind of similar to previous agreements between the two, uh, with Hamas relinquishing governing responsibilities or, or at least stating an intention to. By June, cracks were forming even in that agreement. Like you know, these agreements aren't. Lasting very long. Fatah's leadership expressed concern over Hamas's unwillingness to disarm, uh, and they wanted more control and concessions. Essentially, they're saying, like, if we're going to come in to govern Gaza, we need you to disarm, um, and we need more control and reinsurances that we're actually going to truly govern. And uh, there was a lot of bad blood. You got to remember when Hamas took over Gaza, they remember they threw a Fatah security force member uh, off of a building, and Fatah retaliated doing the same thing, right? So there's a a lot of uh, distrust here. Uh, On June 12th of that year, three Israeli teenagers were kidnapped and killed in the outskirts of of West Bank settlement by rogue members of Hamas. Um, This is something I talked about previous episodes. Israel launched an operation in response into the West Bank. Um, That operation uh, had heavy Hamas casualties and Hamas responded with rocket fire. This led to what was called Operation Protective edge. Um, and this is uh, what Bocconi had to say about this operation. I, I go into detail in this operation in the previous episode, but um, Bocconi said, quote, under the heavy toll of bombing, Hamas used the chaotic environment of war to settle its own political scores and carry out extrajudicial assassinations of its domestic enemies, including members of Fatah, who were held in its jails. More disturbingly, in the early days of the operation, Hamas's Ministry of Interior called on citizens not to respond to evacuation orders by the Israeli military, asserting that these were only issued as a form of psychological warfare to create panic. Netanyahu wound up pushing a ceasefire at the end of that campaign. He, he, he issued a call for calm, which Hamas initially rejected. On uh, August 26, the sides accepted a ceasefire, um, which included a cessation of all fire between the two Uh, which I guess is what a ceasefire is. They commenced uh, reconstruction. Um, They also uh, discussed lifting the blockade, but didn't really agree to a formal lifting of the blockade. Israel basically sidestepped most issues that they didn't want to talk about and hailed it as a victory. Um, By the end of that, there were 2,200, at least, Palestinians dead, um, over 1,400 civilians dead. um, And they pulverized Hamas. During this one. Like, there were a lot of these operations that had negligible effects on Hamas, but this one really devastated Hamas. Uh, a subsequent UN investigation accused both Hamas and Israel of war crimes. Um, and throughout all of this, this sort of talks uh, and spirit of unity government survived, but it was mostly symbolic as it was just too hard to coordinate between the two territories. And in 2017, uh, you know, Hamas is governing at this point kind of redu- reluctantly. Um, they wound up uh, accepting, creating a new document. Uh, I sort of, you remember, like I read their charter, they wrote a new charter that accepted an interim Palestinian state along the green line. And, uh, which was the sort of border established before the six day war in 1967, but they still refused to recognize Israel. Um, and they, they kind of walked back a lot of the language about, uh, semitism that they had in that first document. Abbas indefinitely postponed elections uh, that were scheduled for 2021, citing Israel's uh, refusal to let Palestinians in East Jerusalem vote, Um, but uh, some observers suspected that Abbas uh, was worried about Hamas' victory. A June 2023 poll by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research showed that one-third of Palestinians consider it uh, the most uh, damaging development for their people since the state of Israel. Uh, since, since the state of Israel's 1948 uh, creation. Um, the same poll found that more than half of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank would vote for Hamas's Hania over Abbas in a presidential election, um, while just one-third would support Abbas. So Abbas, like in stalling, I think was picking up on something real, which is that the polling at least showed that Hamas would win. Um, this is important because I think a lot of people are, you know, trading claims about how much this Hamas re- truly represent the will of the Palestinian people, et cetera, Uh, at least in a head-to-head with Fatah and whatever, uh, you know, other forces are included within that polling. After all of that, Hamas was coming out on top of polls, you know, whatever you want to, whatever credence you want to give to those polls. And so by the time of the attack one month ago uh, in the Hamas attack within Israel, Hamas had been governing Gaza for 16 years. Uh, And um, in an interview, with The New Yorker, uh, you know, Bocconi, this book I was reading, ends in 2017. But in an interview, a follow-up interview in The New Yorker, Bocconi said, quote, there was always a degree of ambivalence that Hamas held on to, wanted to be less of a government, governing authority and more of an armed resistance movement. What we've seen with this offensive, and for a few days leading up to it, is a greater degree of confidence of Hamas in, absurd, in asserting its role as speaking on behalf of the Palestinians, not just in the Gaza Strip but across Palestine and even in the diaspora and refugee communities. End quote. So, you know what Paconi is saying is that Hamas views itself as the voice of the Palestinians, and obviously they're drawing on some data like the polling to suggest that, and that they acted accordingly. But also they're they're kind of acting out of a spirit of ambivalence to governing. They kind of are more comfortable being armed resistance terroristic organization uh, and less comfortable administering government. Um, Graham Wood, uh, writing in The Atlantic, uh, talked about how when Hamas uh, sent their people over the border for that horrific attack on Israel, uh, Graham Wood got a hold of a hostage-taking manual that Hamas allegedly had its uh, attackers use. And this manual showed that uh, the hostages were meant to be held in Israel and not necessarily planned to be taken over the border. Um, And uh, it meant they were intending for there to be like, almost like an old school hostage standoff within Israel. And obviously that didn't happen. And I'll quote Graham Wood here. He said, quote, the hostage taking according to the manual is meant to happen in the field in areas that have been cleansed and brought under control. Um, After the hostages are brought together, it says they should be culled uh, parentheses, kill those, and this is quoting it, um, parentheses, uh, quote, kill those expected to resist and those that pose a threat, end quote. The others should be bound and blindfolded and then, quote, reassured to keep them docile, quote, use them as human shields, it says, and use, quote, electric shocks to force compliance, um, quote, kill the difficult ones, it adds, uh, and it specifically notes the need to separate women and children from men. Confirmation that snatching of children was planned from the start and not the product of some kind of excess fervor following battlefield success. Uh, that is where we are. A lot of these leaders I talked about are on the run. Uh, Israel is basically hunting down as many Hamas leaders as they can. It's hard to imagine anything approaching uh, the sort of Hamas governing Gaza with sort of this tacit acknowledgement from Israel phase of this whole thing, like that, those days are over. We are now in a new phase here. And uh, that is kind of where we are. And so there's a lot we could talk about here. I'm drawing on incredibly imperfect sources. Uh, and I really want to shout out Tarek Bakoni. I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but he really did a service in cataloging a lot of the primary source materials here. And where I do agree with him is twofold. One is that every step of the way, Hamas was timing major terrorist attacks to undermine peace. Um, I agree with him on that. And the second thing I agree with him on is that Hamas over time became the dog who caught the car on governance and really did not want to govern. Where I disagree with him, I mean, there's quite a few areas, but I disagree that, uh, you know, in this assertion he makes on the top end, that uh, Hamas is a political, not a religious party. Now, he kind of qualifies it, but I, I think of it every step of the way, especially like the the martyrdom, the idea of suicide bombings only makes sense in the context of the religious fundamentalism. And then you have, you know, up until 2017, the charter that governed Hamas was very explicit about what they were, uh, as were numerous, numerous communications that they had. And so this is Hamas. Uh, this was hopefully helpful to you all. Uh, continue to send in those questions. You know, in all inevitability, like the next episode I do on this will probably take a bunch of your questions and answer a, a series of discrete questions. But thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Give us that five-star rating or whatever, how many stars is the most. Uh, it means a lot to us. Remember, we don't at the moment even bother you with advertising. We don't charge. So giving us a great rating and sharing these episodes with your friends is really important. So our voicemail is 321-200-0570,